Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read a page of The Wise Man's Fear and then we discuss it. This is page 544. Should you ever see that look on a woman's face, leave off talking at once and sit on both your hands. It may not mend matters, but it will at least keep you from making them any worse. Unfortunately, Dayton continued, his thick hands gesturing in the firelight. Her breasts were fallen round like peaches waiting to be taken from the tree. Even the jealous moon, which steals the color from all things, couldn't hide the rosy. Hespi made a disgusted noise and pushed herself to her feet. I'll just leave then, she said. Her voice held such a chill that even Dayden couldn't miss it. What? He looked up at her, still holding his hands in front of himself, frozen in the act of cupping an imagined pair of breasts. She stormed away, muttering under her breath. Dayden let his hands drop heavily into his lap. His expression moved from confused to injured to angry in the space of a breath. After a second, he got to his feet, roughly brushing bits of leaf and twig from his pants and muttering to himself. Gathering up his blankets, he started toward the other side of our little clearing. Did it end with both brothers chasing after her and the boy's father falling behind? I asked. Dayton looked back at me. You've already heard it then. You could have stopped me if you didn't. I'm just guessing, I said quickly. I hate not hearing the ending of a story. Father put his foot in a rabbit hole, Dayton said shortly. Sprained his ankle. Nobody saw the uncle again. He stalked out of the circle of firelight, his expression grim. I cast an imploring look at Martin, who shook his head. Nope, he said softly. I won't have any part of it. Not for the world. Trying to help right now would be like trying to put out a fire with my hands. Painful and with no real results. Tempe began to make up his bed. Martin made a circular gesture with one finger and gave me a questioning look, asking if I wanted the first watch. I nodded, and he gathered up his bedroll, saying, Attractive as some things are, you have to weigh your risks. How badly do you want it? How badly are you willing to be burned? I spread the fire, and soon the deep dark of night settled into the clearing. I lay on my back, looked at the stars, and thought of Denna. That's the page and the chapter. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. Both conjuring Denna is very interesting. There's sort of a double, a double summoning here. The first, I think, is how badly do you want it and how badly are you willing to be burned? A question that Quoth probably subconsciously is asking, is asking himself about Denna all the time. And is also the question that Denna is constantly asking herself in what she puts up with in order to get what she wants. And also a question that Quoth must ask himself, perhaps subconsciously, many, many times as he puts himself through all kinds of torment in order to get what he wants. Also, Devi, an important question. And then secondly, after this story about the most beautiful woman in the world whose sex causes death, Quoth also thinks of Denna. I think that it's a, a two-pronged, shall we say, uh, conjuring of this woman that he loves. If I may add a smaller third prong, uh, he might also be thinking about her. Uh, I, I agree with everything you just said. He might also be thinking about her because the last time that they spoke their words were not kind and it all kind of stemmed from, from uh, a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. So he might, he might be thinking about that a little bit too. Mm. And like, if there had been another person there, could anything that person have said have made that situation better and not worse? Probably not. Reasonable. 
Something that I want to briefly touch on is that uh, Felurian's beauty standards are those of uh, the West, uh, and arguably the West from the like the two thousands. Uh, I think that nowadays we are more critical about what it means to be a beautiful woman, the most beautiful woman person. Um, and we perhaps would not be explicitly saying in the same way that we would perhaps no longer say that like red lips and pale skin are the most desirable. We might not say that, uh, you know, a flat stomach, uh, long legs, these things that are uh, perhaps old outdated standards of beauty uh, are the most desirable. One of those things that I'm not, I mean, I'm criticizing Rothfuss in that I'm pointing it out. I don't think this is done with any malice. And I also think that the Rothfuss of today would think twice before committing this to paper, or at least like have some way to kind of avoid suggesting that it is the standard. But yeah, at the time this was written, this kind of thinking wasn't really happening or at least not in these sectors. So I don't want to let it go by without touching on it, but I also don't want to open up a huge can of worms critiquing it. Yeah. Suffice it to say, there will be a lot of critiques of Valerian coming up. Uh, we can call this an appetizer. All right. Sounds good. Have you any thoughts on that matter, Jordana? I mean, I'm like, I, I agree that the, the descriptions do date the book. Um, I think like, I don't know. I just like it never really bothered me in any way that like because like I don't fit the description that Dayton gave either. <laughs> so, but it never like it never really bothered me. Like I was, it was. It's just something I grew up with in media that I'm almost desensitized to it at a certain point. Like I'm like I see it and I'm like yeah 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 same thing everyone else says whatever kind of thing. Um, not that that's the way it should be, but. I do think I, I agree that it dates it, but I'm also not bothered by it. And I don't think that Rothfuss was wrong to write it that way at, in the time that he did write it. Cause it makes sense. Like if you're an author, you're also like, you're not just writing your passion piece. You're also writing a book that is then gone through editors that then also has to sell to the public and the public that you're selling to is probably a certain demographic. They probably think a certain way and you're trying to sell this book to them. So like, I don't blame Rothfuss for writing it the way he did, but it does date it. All right. The only other thing on this page for me is the source of the story. We get a very explicit teller of the story, a very explicit reason for why the story continues on. The father did not die, did not get sucked into the Fae. Nobody uh, escaped Florian here. This is a uh, a survivor's tale, I suppose. And so potentially the boy, we'll go back on my previous theory, the boy's father told him the story. Assuming there was a boy, it means that the father remembered it and told the boy perhaps many times. And it also you know, makes sense why the song... Uh, is remembered so well because the father never forgot it and perhaps he repeated it often. I mean, the sense that you get from the way the song is described on the previous page is that it has this like magical quality where once you have heard it, you can recall it exactly no matter how long ago it was. Because it doesn't seem like Foth is going to forget it either. Hmm. Yeah. 
Maybe. I don't get the sense that it is like magically imbued in your mind. But then again, it is there word for word perfect. So maybe it is. Who knows? It's also kind of a mess story. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you think about that ending. Like, they don't go well, to Faye. He trips He trips in a rabbit hole. Like, it's like, it, it kind of feels like he had well, the rug pulled out from under you. Telling. Yeah, like. It's the telling. It's, it's a horror story. And it's also the telling of the story. Like, I can see how this would be a good horror story on a campfire. Yeah. If I just told you the events of the story without any embellishment or description, all stories sound dumb and bad. The reason that it sounds dumb and bad to us is because Dayton is no longer in the mood to tell a story. So he just says, yeah, he tripped whatever. I'm going to bed. Right. Yeah. Quoth finds the bandits, kills them with some lightning he also finds Florian and then emerges with explicit instructions to have sex with all women in the world. Yeah, great story. Yeah. Okay. You see what I did there? Yes. No, I get it. I get it. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Anything else, Jordana? I have no more notes. I am all done. Are you sure about that? Are you sure? Oh, I'm sorry. It's the end of a chapter. Pardon me. Um, this chapter was called The Jealous Moon. The Jealous Moon both referring to the jealous moon in the story itself and also Hespi. Yeah? Yeah. Yep. All right. Couldn't have said it better myself. All right. Let's we wrap have it a up. letter today. Oh, okay. Never mind. Oh, we can wrap it up. Our letter is from Bill, who writes, You're back. We are. Dear readers, joy of joys. You are back from your well-earned hiatus. So glad to hear your voices again. I absolutely love the remainder of this book. It's like we get several novellas until the end. Bandit tracking in the Eld, learning sexomancy from a fae, martial training in a demra, a brief story of saving damsels in distress that's actually a bunch of murder, more lackless mystery, and then back to the university. Each one feels just like as you settle in the story crescendos and we're whisked off to a new location. I'm curious, before you fully dive into these individual stories, do you each have a favorite setting in the second half of this book? If I was really organized, I'd ask this question again once you're back in the university, to see if your answers change. Lastly, I joked about sexomancy earlier. On a recent reread, I was surprised at the Fullerian section and how tender many of the scenes were, and how that section wasn't as prurient as I had set it in my memory. I'm curious whether my perception will hold up under the close read approach, as I, we, slowly digested over the span of days. But that's like three months out, so for now I'm excited to hunt some bandits. Thanks for all the hard work and time. Welcome back. All that's good, signed Bill. I too cannot wait to get to that section of the book. Uh, and I kind of agree with you that like his adventures, once he leaves the university are kind of episodic in the same way that a lot of like legends about heroes and their journeys are like, you know, Heracles or, or Robin Hood or King Arthur, like the modern writers when they're retelling those stories kind of try to tie them all together and like have a consistent through line. But a lot of them are just like, he went here and he did this. And then he went here and he did that. And then he went here and he got married and he did this. And then he went there and he did that. But they're not like tied together quite as, as explicitly as you might think uh, in terms of like having like a one theme throughout, because a lot of those stories were not necessarily connected originally. And I think that might be something that Rothfuss is doing deliberately a little bit this guy is a legendary hero who's had a bunch of adventures and they his life does kind of mirror that structure in that they are a little bit episodic that way because he travels to a few different places and he meets a few different people and learns a few different things 
to answer your question, Bill, I have many favorite settings uh, for a number of reasons. My single favorite scene in the whole book is the scene with the Cathay. Um, I really love the setting of the Fae, although I am not a fan of what goes down there, but I'm looking forward to getting there so that I can, like you, reassess and see if I had uh, pinned it as being more salacious than it actually is. I quite like the politicking in uh, Severin. I quite like the story within a story, Hunt for the Bandits. I think if I had to pick a single moment aside from the Cathay scene. I think the sequence with the false raw troop is one that in the past I haven't thought much about, but I'm looking forward to getting back to probably the most because it's like a little mystery. There's a ton of close reading to happen uh, when we get there and uh, unraveling the mistakes they make that Quoth notices, but doesn't tell us that he notices is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Cool. I don't think do you, I've... you have an answer to Bill's question? I do. But I don't think that... I don't think of the settings as necessarily connected to the scene. So if I think of, like, my favorite settings, it's not necessarily because of the scenes that occur in them, but more just because the setting seems interesting to me. So, like, I like Twilight... And I like the under thing and I like them for the same reason in that if I wanted to visit somewhere in a fantasy story, I would want to visit one of those two places because they don't seem too busy. Like there's not too much like fast moving stuff. There's not like a a bunch of people around because I don't like people. So like I like the under thing and I like Twilight because it feels like, oh, like here is this lovely, interesting place that has... Like what? Like a a character in it, so it's not totally vacant, but it's also not like super overpopulated. Well, there you go. I think I like Twilight because I like scary fairies, and I like Adamra because I like cool ninja swords people, martial artists. Those are two of my favorite tropes uh, to show up in a book, and they're both very well done in this one. I think I would fit in very poorly in Adamra. I'm not tough enough. <laughs> But you could learn to be tough. Yeah, but I don't know if I want that. <laughs> I think I like being squishy. There are advantages to being squishy. You could be both, like a sumo wrestler. Oh, fair. Reasonable. All right. Tough listeners, you can imagine what it would be like to embrace a sumo wrestler in the interim while you wait for us to return on tomorrow's page. Uh, the. Wee. Wee. Wee.